0: Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own.
1: Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto
0: and Christopher Hurtado.
1: Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss, But what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us and we hope that you find value in this community.
0: Welcome back everyone for Latter-day Contemplation. I'm Christopher Hurtado.
1: And I'm Riley Risto.
0: Riley, today, there's a topic we've been meaning to talk about for a long time, perennialism. This is something that, that we, we've wanted to do that we haven't done for whatever reason. And Tom Bogle, who does some editing for the Come Follow Me podcast, our sister podcast, suggested that we do something like this. And we already wanted to do it. So here we are. But thanks to, for, for encouraging us, Tom. And so let's talk about perennialism.
1: Yeah, we've hinted at it. We've mentioned it several times. We talk about perennialist thinkers all the time. And that's probably because in our own mindset, we're pretty perennial. We, we try to find truth wherever it comes from and adopt it into our own, you know, practice or ethic or discipleship, whatever, and kind of agnostic when it comes to where it comes from, right?
0: Yeah, and to kind of further define it, we also believe that it, it all comes from the same place, and it all leads back to the same place. It's from God, and it leads us back to God. There's many paths, right? Yeah, th- there's my favorite quote from Rumi that I quote all the time, which is, there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth.
1: Right. So what's the history and background of perennialism? Where does this idea or philosophy come from?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. But you know, first, before we go into that, I've got this quote from Dr. Saeed Hossein Nasser, who is a living perennialist philosopher, who is a frequent guest speaker at BYU. And uh, he's from the, you know, from the Islamic tradition. He's a, a Sufi. Uh, Sufism would be the the mystical dimension of Islam. And he has this, I've got this quote where he just gives an encapsulation of what perennialism is. He says, Perennialism sees the universal truth of God in all its forms. It is inclusive, and it is the doctrinal heart of Sufism. Perennialism can remove that fear of losing one's own religious form, for it emphasizes universalism without destroying one's own sacred forms. It emphasizes that the seeker follows his own tradition while seeking the truth in other traditions. It is through active seeking and continually knocking on God's door and waiting that an appropriate path for men and women will emerge. That's
1: rad. I love that quote so much. And I guess the reason I love it is because I can sense, maybe in myself and other Latter-day Saints around me, this hesitation to go off into other religious traditions and explore them because we have our own ideas about what God is and what constitutes Scripture and so forth. So for example, we believe in a a God of body parts and passions of, you know, bones and flesh and all that stuff, which makes it difficult when you read something like this. It says, well, you know, God in all its forms, and and immediately it puts a Latter-day Saint on the defensive. And what I love about what he says here is he says, you can remove that fear of losing your own religious form, I put in parentheses God for it emphasizes universalism without destroying one's own sacred forms of God or anything else, right? So it it kind of sets you free to explore without risk because, listen, if you don't like it, don't adopt it. That's fine. But this is just all about exploration and seeing the commonalities and, and the overlaps between religious traditions.
0: And you hit on a key term there, right? Commonalities. This is and this is a lot like what the missionaries do. When they're talking to people who aren't familiar with our tradition, they want to share our tradition. What do they do? They listen for what is common in the tradition of of whomever they're speaking with, right?
1: Right. Yeah, I remember when I was taking the discussions myself and I told the missionaries I was Catholic and you know, that was just more of at that point kind of a cultural assignment because I quit going to Catholic church prior to taking the discussions. However, I remember one of the missionaries saying that, "Oh, you're a Catholic, well, Catholic's just a Mormon waiting to be baptized again." And I think it was sort of condescending the way that he said it at first, but nevertheless, the way I took it at the time was that there there must be some commonalities between Catholicism and and latter-day saintism.
0: That's the impression you got, and so that's he was able to put out that vibe, right, and you picked up on it. Yeah. And we have we have a lot in common. Let's let's talk about this because we have a lot more in common with Catholics than we do with Protestants. A- and there's I think it's Bruce R. McConkie and his Mormon Doctrine, which the church told him he couldn't call by that title, and he did anyway, and they said that he couldn't because it's not Mormon doctrine. And the first edition of that actually said that the Catholic Church was the the Church of the Devil, right?
1: Yeah, it was the great and abominable
0: church, right? The Great and Abominable Church. They uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So this gave the impression to a lot of a lot of Latter-day Saints that we don't have anything in common with Catholicism. And then of course there's the whole idea that the Catholic Church, that the great apostasy comes through the Catholic Church. I find that it's much earlier. And in fact, we you know, looking at what elders George A. Smith and Parley P. Pratt had to say about it, they find that by the time of the rise of Islam that just as the Prophet Muhammad claimed, he's restoring truth. So the the great apostasy is already in full swing by that point, according to those guys.
1: That's what, 700s, 7th century or 8th century?
0: 600s, yeah, 7th century, early, early 7th century, yeah. So going into the background a little bit of perennialism, also known as perennial philosophy or philosophia perennis or philosophia perennis. So this is a perspective in philosophy and in spirituality that looks at all the religious traditions and sees them, as I mentioned earlier, as sharing this single metaphysical truth. There's behind all these different religions, there's one ultimate reality. And all of the knowledge that we have, whether it's inner or outer, esoteric or exoteric, It comes from that same place, and again, it leads us back to that same place. And this goes all the way back to the Renaissance, and it comes out of this interest that the Renaissance humanists had in Neoplatonism. This starts with Marsilio Ficino. Marsilio Ficino translated Plotinus and Plato into Latin, you know, for his... And by the way, this comes out of... These texts come to Italy when the fall of Constantinople happens, and a lot of the scholars, who happen to be Christians, by the way, they're Eastern Christians, they come to Italy and they bring these texts with them. And so that's how they get these texts. And Marsilio Ficino is translating them. This is in uh, 15th century Florence. And he's trying to integrate, you know, what he already has with what comes to him. And so he wants to integrate Hermeticism with Greek thought, with Jewish thought, with Jewish Christian thought. So Marcillo Ficino finds that there's this Prisca theologia right this this idea that that is this commonality that's this thing that's the same right in all these traditions he's looking for commonalities right he's doing just as the missionaries do focusing on what's the same, not so much and he he starts to harmonize he takes the same takes up the same project as the Muslim philosophers in the Middle Ages when the Christians were busy doing theology and the Muslims were doing philosophy the Muslims were trying to harmonize Plato and Aristotle who seem to be saying things that are opposite, right? That are, well, they are opposite, but of course that doesn't have to mean that they're contradictory, and we're going to go more into that later. And so then comes Pico de la Mirandola. Have we mentioned him? Pico's, you know, Pico gives this, he has this essay, The Oration on the Dignity of Man, where we get this idea in the West that, and this is something that's related to what we talked about on our last episode with Al-Ghazali, this idea that we have in common we have commonalities with angels, you know, with the highest uh, form on the the chain of being, and with the lowest, with animals, right? And so that was that was understood that there was this chain of being that goes all the way back to to the Greeks, you know, to antiquity, Plato's time. They had that, but there's this idea that comes out in Pico in the West that we can ascend or descend the ladder, that our place is not fixed, and it looks like he got this idea from Al Ghazali, who we covered in our last episode, and that's because. Pico's Hebrew teacher read Al-Ghazali, likely read Al-Ghazali, I should say. And, and so it's not that Pico read Al-Ghazali, but his Hebrew teacher likely did. And this idea probably comes to him through Al-Ghazali, well, through his, from Al-Ghazali, through his Hebrew teacher. And so Pico, he also sees these aspects of this Prisca in some of the Arab philosophers in Ibn Rushd, who we know in the Western tradition as Averroes. And in the Quran and in the Kabbalah. So these guys are studying Jewish mysticism too, which is something Joseph Smith will do later too. And other sources. And so then you get this guy, Agostino Steuco, who actually coins the term Philosophia perennis, which is the perennial philosophy. So I guess you know that's sort of the, the background of it. There's a more popular interpretation we can give that there's sort of this universalism that all the religions point to the same truth as I said before.
1: And just to interject there, so the universalism you're talking about here is not so much like a soteriological universalism. It's more of a universalism of truth, of ideas. Right. right. Yeah.
0: Right. That's a good point. Yeah. And so then you have the, the transcendentalists, right? Like Emerson and Thoreau, they take this. Emerson, you know, he loved the—some of these guys, they had contact with, with the Hindu scriptures, right? Emerson loved the Bhagavad Gita. Thoreau loved the Bhagavad Gita. People may not realize even uh, Oppenheimer. And Op- when, when Oppenheimer saw the test of the atom bomb, he actually said, and he's been quoted, and, and listeners may have heard of this, right? He says, now I am become death destroyer of worlds. What people don't realize is that's Oppenheimer giving his own translation, you know, off the cuff of what he's memorized in Sanskrit he studied, now Emerson didn't think you should bother studying any foreign language if there was a translation, but Thoreau studied Sanskrit and Oppenheimer studied sans- Sanskrit because of the Gita. And you know what? I'm in love with the book myself and I'm tempted to take on a 13th language and learn Sanskrit. And of course there's Rumi, you know, Persian. There are all these texts that, that inspire me to learn, not only to go into the text, but to, I always think about them in terms of going into the original texts, you know? I know you read some, you know, German, and you read Rilke, and, you know, you can find great translations of Rilke, including Stephen Mitchell's, but it's not like reading the German, is it?
1: Well, I love reading it side by side. That just enhances my understanding. So, you know, you got... I do that too. One page, you've got the original German, and then on the other, someone's idea of what that German means. And it does inform, and it does help, but I love reading the original too. Sometimes I like reading it, even if I don't fully understand the language. Like, I'm not an expert in Italian. I, I can get along okay, but I love reading original Italian. It, has a, it just has a different sound to it when you, when you speak it out loud or even just when you're reading it on a page. It just feels different, and I'm sure that's the same with every language. So, I mean, I, like, I just like reading originals regardless.
0: Yeah, I got into Italian just like you. I was memorizing songs that I loved without even knowing what they meant, even though I was a Spanish speaker already and had studied French, and eventually I learned, I learned them by heart and I learned the meaning, and I went from there and learned more Italian. So you get this, you get toward the end of the 19th century, the the Theosophical Society. I have a hard time saying that. Theosophical Society. I want to say this is um, Madame Madame Blavatsky was her name. That's a little more controversial. And in fact, if we want to get really controversial, there is, there's Hane Genon. So after World War II, you have this Advaita Vedanta traditionalist school. And, and you have these metaphysicians like Genon and his disciples, you have Frithjof Schuan, Ananda Kumaraswamy. Uh, some of these guys are, are they're French uh, converts to Islam living in Egypt. You have Martin Lings, who wrote a beautiful biography of Muhammad. Lings was a, um, a Shakespeare scholar teaching English in Egypt. And so he wrote this beautiful biography. It's called, what's it called? It's a biography of the Prophet Muhammad based on the earliest sources, something like that. It's this hero's journey sort of feel to it. It's got this hero's journey sort of feel to it. And so then you get down to, well, there's Aldous Huxley. He's considered, he wrote a book, The Perennial Philosophy, and yet things start to get, they start to differentiate a little bit. And we're not going to say there's an orthodox, you know, perennialism and an unorthodox perennialism, but things do differentiate a little bit as we move forward in time. And so you also have Julius Evola, and this becomes controversial, and I want to bring this up in case people have heard of Julius Evola in in connection with traditionalism or perennialism because he's associated with Trump, and then there's this whole controversy surrounding that because, well, there's controversy around Trump and the fact that Julius Evola was a fascist, which, which is actually a fact, and so then that means Trump is a fascist, according to pundits. And so really, we're not talking about anything to do with fascism here. What we're talking about is the idea that there's perennial wisdom, that it shows up here and there and everywhere in this and that and other times, and that it comes from the same source, and it points back to the same source. So then there's one more thing to talk about, and that is going forward right in time. I've been talking about this chronologically. You have Carl Jung. You have people inspired by Carl Jung in some sense, like Joseph Campbell, who's the mythologist. Carl Jung is the psychologist right up there with Freud, right? In fact, the two of them were rivals, and it's because actually because because Jung appreciated the, per- the perennial wisdom and Freud didn't, he didn't actually, he didn't give any credit to any kind of religious thought or ideas, other than that there were fantasies to oversimplify perhaps Freud a little bit. But that's kind of the general idea of it, right? So as Jung found value in it, whatever he thought or felt or believed about it, the point is that he found value. In it. And we can fast forward to today, we have Jordan Peterson, who gave an excellent series of lectures. On the Bible, uh, interpreted psychologically.
1: Well, he's essentially utilizing, uh, you know, the the Mircea Eliade route of finding those common threads between ancient belief systems and traditions. And it's interesting. I, I think we were talking off off the air a little while ago, and and you mentioned, oh, you know, that's because Freud won, and that's why we're where we're at in you know in terms of our. The APA, psychiatry, psychology, all that stuff, it really focuses on the non-religious aspects of psychology and psychiatry. And that's because Freud won that debate between, you know, and it wasn't a formal debate, obviously, the informal debate, right?
0: In, in, in the mind of, let's say, in society, right? Right. In the zeitgeist at this time is this Freudian zeitgeist. It's not Jungian. And yet, and yet it seems like it's, it's changing gradually.
1: That's my point. Yeah. Cause I mean, a guy like Jordan Peterson comes out who is a psychologist, who's a, he's a trained guy, right? In, in cognitive behavior and he writes books and he's a very smart guy. And, you know, some people bristle at that, whatever. But, you know, he comes out essentially going back to Jung again. He's more of a Jungian school and has amazing popularity because these ideas, whether they were out of vogue with the intelligentsia or not, they're not dead. These ideas still resonate with people.
0: Yeah, so you, it takes somebody like James Hillman, who 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 again would be a Jungian to say, and and by the way, he he has the creds to say this. I could say it too, but I'm not a psychologist. I don't have a PhD in psychology. So here comes James Hillman with a PhD in psychology and says, "Guys, this is not a science, right? Psychology is not a science. We're dealing with the soul, right? This is the." An understanding of the soul that we're talking about. And, and the soul cannot be measured. Seen, hear, heard, smelled, taste, touched, right? And so, and he would tell us that we lack, that That our views are are too, that they're not imaginal, imaginal enough, right? That we're lacking in the imaginal realm. And so that's where, you know, Jung is going to compare the dream world to the collective, what he calls the collective unconscious. And he's going to find images that show up in people's dreams that are common among people who have not shared the same experience. And so he says, where do these come from? And he posits this collective unconscious that's this, I think we can say is equivalent with the dream world. It's part of the unseen world.
1: It's sort of like this semi-inherited, almost semi-genetic type thing that everyone has. And where does it come from? Like if if it's not genetic in some way or biological in some way, how is it that we keep hearkening to the same symbols across cultures without the same exposure levels to those symbolic meanings.
0: Right. And if you want me to answer that question, which is, is sounded rhetorical, but I'm going to go ahead and give an answer. I'll give a couple of answers first. Why should we assume that it isn't inherited genetically or biologically? There's, there is talk about um, how trauma, right, actually is inherited. There's family trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation, right? And so that's, that seems to be a reality. And then if we, if we want to say it's, it's not, then okay, back to the dream world, right? In the Islamic tradition, there's this idea that when you sleep, your soul returns to God to rest from the world because it gets weary of the world and needs to return to where it came from. It comes from God. It returns to God. Now, we know so little truly about sleep that we don't know that this isn't true. We don't know that it is true, but we also don't know that it isn't true. And it seems like a good idea to me. I can, I can certainly identify with the feeling. I wish I could go back with my soul to rest. So my body's resting and maybe not resting well, but my that it's comforting to me to think that my soul might go back to God to rest with him.
1: Well, a third possibility, too, of course, is is the way we tell our stories, right? And you guys did a whole episode, you and Shiloh, on this podcast about the stories that we tell. And the way stories are told, and this is, again, according to Mirce Eliade and his, his hypothesis, is that All stories that are that have any longevity whatsoever, that really last in the human psyche, are the ones that conform to the archetypal model. And Joseph Campbell goes into that in detail in *The Power of Myth*. And I think that's that's compelling. Even if it's not inherited biologically, even if you know there's no evidence for that genetic type inheritance, there's still the power and longevity of stories across cultures.
0: Now, Riley, we dealt with this. You, you brought it up early on, but even after you've already brought it up and dealt with it a little bit, listeners may be feeling uncomfortable uh, about, about, about these ideas, right? There's because we have these truth claims and they seem to be exclusive, right? So I'm going to give a definition of truth from Jung, right? There, there are different ways to define truth.
1: Truth claims are not, they're, they're not like unique to us. Right. There's lots of traditions that make truth claims. And they're, and they're exclusive truth claims. Exactly. So, I mean, we're not alone in that, right? And
0: Nasser knows this when he, gives that, when he says what we quoted from the beginning of the episode. He knows that. Yeah. So let's, let's look at a Jungian idea of truth. So one thing I can say before we go into this quote, you know, we think often of truth as correspondence to reality. As a, as a philosopher, I studied different definitions of truth, right? Different ideas about what's meant by truth, but the most commonly understood one by non-philosophers is just correspondence to reality. And yet, if we read our scriptures, we don't find correspondence to reality in that way. So if, if we're getting etiological stories about how things became the way they are that aren't really historical, because those ancient writers did not have a way of writing historically the way we do, they did not have archaeology. They did not have an understanding of the ancient languages that, that we got that gave us access to, and, and even the mindset, right? The mindset, the Western mindset to even want to do that. Yeah. Formal, That's not what they were they up to. They didn't have
1: formal linguistics uh, as, a, as a branch of study. Uh, they didn't know how to study comparative history. So you're right. I mean, they just didn't have the tools to be able to do that.
0: Or even, the, I, I would say, even the desire. It's it's sort of a Western way of thinking. Sure if you have this, this linear way of thinking, you would think to do something like that. If you have a, a more cyclical way of thinking about time, then why would you even go into that, right? It's a different way of thinking. It's like back to Eliad again, this idea of the myth of the eternal return that you actually, that everything happens in a cycle and that you repeat the cycle, whether it's you in your own life or whether it's, uh, generations, Uh, The idea that going to the temple, rather than thinking about it, even as Latter-day Saints, we can think in terms of not just going to learn about the creation, but to actually return to in the beginning and to actually recreate the world, to actually bring order to the cosmos. Because remember, we always have this idea that, that there's a microcosm and a macrocosm, and that the microcosm is in us, and it's a mirror of the macrocosm, which is the universe. And so we, we can recreate ourselves and bring order to the chaos of our lives. And that's how, not in these terms exactly, but church leaders do talk about going to the temple to find peace, right? And to get away from the world. So it's really, this is what we're dealing with, right?
1: Well, and one way to, uh, to think about this idea of having the one truth is that that both validates that, but also opens the mind up to the idea that there are multiple approaches to that one truth is this, is this way of looking at it through the lenses, right? So you say, okay, I've got my lens and that culture has their lens. And the way we see the truth through our lens looks to us to be the perfect, the only true and living truth that we can (laughs) approach, right?
0: According to our lens, right? Yeah.
1: Right, that's our lens, that's what we see and it makes perfect sense to us and we can't imagine that any other culture or viewpoint could see things differently.
0: And yet you and I have had the experience of taking of learning not only a second language but the culture that is that is wrapped up in the language and of actually living in those cultures, right? And so you start to get a sense that this isn't the only way to think about it. Like and, and it's not just yeah, I mean it starts with thinking, but it ends up with how you build a house, or where you put things, uh, you know, and how things work. It's a completely different way of doing things. I remember my mom's experience when she told me about going to Morocco. She just thought, okay, it's not just the language, right? Arabic. She doesn't know Arabic. She, she's crossing over from Spain where she was living at the time. And she just says, I realized, Christopher, I can't remember her words, but something like they just were thinking in a completely different way and things just worked completely differently and I could not tap into it i myself have tapped into that by learning arabic and by living not just visiting but by living in the arab world
1: so you're pointing to something that uh, it came i mean it came to the forefront recently from john verveke's teachings on ways of knowing that i think is interesting i mean what a lot of times people think of when they think of knowing, knowledge, truth, that kind of stuff is this idea of propositions that something is either true or false, black and white. And we talked about this in a past podcast, I think, but Verveke posits that by knowing things from more than one perspective or perspectival knowing, that we start to uh, inculcate and integrate ideas of things that don't necessarily correlate with how we saw them originally through our original lens and that comes from doing things a different way so that's procedurally different right or being in a society and participating in the society that has the different viewpoints and all of a sudden you get a sense of where they're coming from and you're an active you're an active part of that in creating the reality the knowledge the truth so the Verveki's model is called the four Ps of Knowing, something to look into if you're interested in, in the different ways there. But I know you had something to say about yun
0: Yeah, so I'm getting there. So we I had, you know, to respond to what you've just said, I had the experience of what Verveke's talking about growing up. So long before I studied Arabic and lived in the Arab world, I grew up bilingual. I grew up bicultural, living, you know, between the United States and Venezuela. And learning English and then Spanish both in my childhood, and so I've actually, because of that experience, I've I've made it a point to go out of my way, to well, for example, just to make a comparative study of religion, and I've found so much value in studying other religious traditions in terms of understanding my own religious tradition. And this is how it works. So to go into this Jung quote, I'm going to give sort of an encapsulation of it in LDS terms. It's this idea that the truth is round. I I want to say truth is round. I don't think that's really the LDS terminology, but that's how I think about it. The one eternal round thing? All truth can be circumscribed into one great whole. That's the verbiage, right? To me, that says the truth is round. So it's not this flat thing, right? It's spherical. So here's, here's Jung. He says, imagine a gigantic prism in front of the sun so that its rays are broken up, But suppose man entirely ignorant of this fact. So there's this prism between you and the sun, but you don't know it. He says men living in the blue lit region will say the sun sends forth blue light only. They're right, and yet they're wrong. From their standpoint, they're capable of perceiving only a fragment of the truth. This is already starting to remind me of the Sufi story, which actually I think is an older story from the Hindu tradition about the the men feeling you know blind men touching an uh, an elephant, right? Yeah, so, okay, I've got, the, I've got the leg here, and I say, an elephant is like a tree, and another one has the, the, the trunk, and he says, no, an elephant yeah. is yeah a tusk. or the, And so their, their, their interpretation of what an elephant is, just like our interpretation of what God is or any reality, is subjective, right? That's what this is saying. And so they have no idea. So Jung goes on, and so too with the inhabitants of the red, yellow, and intermediate regions, and they will all scourge and slay one another to force their fragmentary truth on the others. Until, grown wiser through traveling in each other's regions, they come to... The, and it, would, it makes sense that Jung would say this because he did travel widely himself. He has first-hand experience of this. They come to the unanimous view that the sun sends out light of different colors. This is a more comprehensive truth. But it is still not the truth. Only when a giant lens has recombined the split-up rays... And when the invisible, chemical, and heat rays have given proof of their specific effects, will the view arise more in accordance with the truth. And men will perceive that the sun emits white light, which is split up by the prism into different rays with different qualities, and that these rays are combined by the lens into a beam of white light. Such a great analogy.
1: Yeah, perfect.
0: So, Riley, why wouldn't this idea of perennialism Why would it perhaps not resonate with Latter-day Saints? Let's address some of the possible objections.
1: Well, for one, we we might feel like we don't have to reach very far because within our tradition, we already have this, quote-unquote, fullness of the gospel, right? And we live in the fullness of the times, and if we've got the fullness of the gospel in the fullness of the times, then there's really no reason for us to go any further, right? We've got it all. So that's one, for sure.
0: And then there's the idea that ours is the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Right, there's that. So let's let's go into these a little bit and, and see how we can answer to these objections, starting with the the second first. How about that? The, the true and so living? So what would you say to this? Yeah, so what would you say to that? I don't need to look outside of my tradition because my tradition, my church is the only true and living church upon the face of the whole earth.
1: I mean, from that cultural lens, looking through and only seeing that, you know, split-up piece of the prism color coming through, they, they're right. That's how they're experiencing it, right? I mean, the truth that they're receiving is the only truth, and it's the only living truth, because it's the only one living within them.
0: That's a good answer, I, I,
1: There's a, There's another answer, obviously, that's more historical, having to do with, you know, the Joseph Smith papers and some later revelations about that phrase, and it's, you know, sort of <laughs> 19th century... Yeah, Go ahead.
0: well, there's... So there's a lot of Meaning crammed into one verse, right? This verse appears, this idea appears only in one verse in all of the standard works, right? This is DNC 130. That's section one, verse 30. Can it really hold all that meaning, this one verse? What if we had the second? uh, This is a one two punch, okay? Here comes the second punch. What if it's a term of endearment? What if I told you Joseph Smith wrote to his wife, he wrote you must comfort yourself knowing that god is your friend in heaven and that you have one true and living friend on earth your husband wait a minute all her other friends are dead
1: yeah that's pretty lonely or she Jeez. doesn't
0: have any friends what <laughs> what does he mean by this you know i think this is a little bit hyperbolic right and and i think it's a term of endearment which by the way what happens if we keep reading dnc 1 verse 30 the Lord says, with which I, the Lord, am well pleased. It sounds like it's a term of endearment. Sure. Yeah, this idea that I love the church.
1: Isn't it interesting how we've done that as a church, though? We've taken this one phrase and we've we've made it a full like doctrinal tenet of the church that this is the one and only true church in which the Lord is well pleased and it, it has cut us off from so much truth because we believe that we've got it all and even though intuitively if you were to ask the average latter day saint do we have all the truth they're all all of them are going to say no but they're not going to they're not going to admit however that 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 truth is with some other tradition they're going to say well god hasn't revealed it to us yet and both are true by the way both are true because god reveals truths to us through, through. the experience of other traditions exactly. right that's one
0: way at least yeah, that's one way he does. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Who's to say that the Lord cannot reveal truth to us through another tradition?
1: Yeah, it happens all the time.
0: So we have this other idea then that you mentioned that we have the fullness of the gospel. And I think if we pair that with the fullness of times, then we can see, and, and by the way, I, we got this idea from Michael Wilcox. I, you and I both heard him say this on a podcast, this idea that if you can if you have the fullness of times and you pair that with the fullness of the gospel that means the fullness of the gospel includes everything that has come down to us in different revelations in different traditions up until this day all of it yeah the
1: way we've sort of interpreted it has been to mean that this specific disp- dispensation we're in right now from 18 you know 20 on or whenever to now is is the fullness of times. Instead of taking the all-encompassing view of history all the way back as far as we have record and saying that whole thing is the fullness of times, no, instead we're saying it's from 1820 to 2021. That equals the fullness of times. So I, I like Michael Wilcox's version much better. It's much more all-encompassing. It opens us up to so much more possibility of exploration. And it just makes more sense, to be honest.
0: Yeah, and it's, and it's and it's really actually obvious that the fullness of times, that this dispensation, even if you think of it as going back to only to the early 1800s, there was no blank slate. We didn't wipe away everything that came before. There may have been some correctives given. There may have been some clarifications given, but everything is included. It's all there. And another thing that, that the fullness of times brings us that we're experiencing, you and I aren't even in the same place, Riley. You're in Utah. I'm in California. We're we're using the internet via Skype, right? And we have access to all of the sacred texts of all the traditions in translation in English. We don't have to. We can we can just be like Emerson. We don't even have to learn Sanskrit to read the Bhagavad Gita, like uh, you know, like Thoreau did. We can just read it in English. And so that's, inclu- that's part of it. My
1: friend Mehdi told me, though, that uh, you, you can't really read the Quran without reading it in Arabic. That, that, was, his,
0: that was his opinion. <laughs> well, okay, so the, the Quran, this is, this is an interesting point, because the Quran means recitation. And so if you're reading, and it's, and it's a recitation in Arabic, if you're reading a translation, that's not the Quran. And if, you're, and, and if it's a text, if you're not talking about the hearing of it, but if you're talking about a text, that's not even Quran. That's a masaf. That's a, a codex. Right? So we have this idea, you know, it's actually expressed in, in Second Nephi, chapter 29. We, we see this, right? We see this resistance, a Bible, a Bible. We have got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. What if we had said, we have a Book of Mormon, a Book of Mormon. There cannot be another Book of Mormon. What about the Doctrine and Covenants? Okay, well, now that we have that, a Doctrine and Covenants, That well, wait a minute, what about the Pearl of Great Price? And why would we stop there?
1: Yeah, it makes no sense to stop there. I mean, we're told that out of the, we're supposed to be exploring all of the best books, right? Um, and that's that's where we we get additional light and truth is from from studying all of the best books. And so, you know, obviously there's not going to be another Bible. There's not going to be another Doctrine and Covenants. But there are other scriptures out there that are equivalent and useful and can really be help a, a tool for us to expand on what we already know.
0: What do you mean by equivalent, Riley?
1: Well, I don't, for me personally, I, I love the Book of Mormon. I love the Doctrine and Covenants, all right. But the more I've studied the Bhagavad Gita and as I've read the Dhammapada and the Tao Te Ching and, and the Quran, there's so much truth in all of those. And so why wouldn't I treat them all as I treat scripture?
0: Yeah, another idea in our tradition is that there are other scriptures that we don't know of. So if we, go, if we think about the, the, the Book of Mormon, we get this statement that there that there's more than one nation. This is again in, in 2 Nephi chapter 29, that there is more than one nation, and that that God speaks to all these nations, and he commands them to write. And so to read from the verse here, we can say, Wherefore, because that ye have a Bible, ye need not suppose that it contains all my words, neither need ye suppose that I have not caused more to be written. So God has caused the Vedas, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Dhammapada, the Analects, the Tao Te the Quran, the the sacred texts of the Sikh tradition, the Adi Granth to be written. He's inspired men and this is Well, and
1: he's very he's very specific. I mean, he, he's not saying that all of the scriptures are coming out of the western world, out of the you know, European American uh, tradition. He, he's saying, I'm commanding all men both in the east and in the west and in the north and in the south and in the islands of the sea. He, he's taking in the totality of our planet and saying everyone has their piece of truth that God reveals to him." And in fact, he calls it that. He said, they shall write the words which he spoke unto them, which God speaks to them.
0: Yeah, in verse 12 he says, For behold, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto the other tribes of the house of Israel, which I have led away, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto... And now he just goes and says, etc., right? Something like, etc. All nations of the earth, and they shall write it. What if we what if we spell that out? And I shall also speak to the Hindus, and they shall write it in the Vedas, the Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita, and I shall also speak unto the Buddhists and they shall write it in the Dhammapada and the Pali Canon. And I shall also speak unto the Chinese, and they shall write it in the Analects and the Daodejing. And I shall also speak to the Muslims, and they shall write it in the Quran. And I shall also speak to the Sikhs, and they shall write it in the Adi Granth. So just take that et cetera and spell it out. And these scriptures are available to us. We think that, that I think sometimes we think that the scriptures that we don't know of are these, these plates that are sealed,
1: yeah, they're still hidden somewhere.
0: Right. So there are plates that are sealed. Our tradition tells us that, at least. But what about the ones that aren't sealed? What about one of my favorite expressions? They hide this stuff in books, right? <laughs> These things are published, and they're in translation.
1: Yeah. What about if they're sealed to us?
0: Ah, They're sealed yes. to us because
1: we haven't accessed them yet, right? Maybe, maybe we haven't learned the right language to access them. And I, I'm not talking about translated, you know, translated books. I'm talking about the, the language of Scripture like the way that that particular scripture is read. For instance, if you read the Bhagavad Gita, as I did my first time, and, you, and you've got this, this Hindu god telling a, a regular person like me to go and kill his countrymen and his, his family in this battle, and it's just this back and forth between Krishna and, and this regular person like me right, about why he should go and fight this battle. And it almost makes no sense the first time you read it. I mean, it's a nice little story. It has a little bit of a narrative to it. But until you get familiar with what it is they're trying to communicate that's specific to the Hindu religion, then that book is sealed to you. And now I've had it somewhat opened up to me by a practicing Hindu in in book form. And it starts to make sense. I'm like, okay, now that's no longer sealed. It's no longer hidden. I'm starting to understand what it is that Krishna is trying to explain.
0: And now in the fullness of time, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, you didn't have to go to India and you didn't have to find a guru. You were able to read a commentary published in your own language. So you brought up this idea also from our scriptures, Riley, from DNC 88, verse 118, as all have not faith, seek ye diligently and teach one another words of wisdom Yea, seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom, seek learning even by study and also by faith. Surely, Riley, the sacred texts from the East and the West are among the best books. And why is that? I, I found that to be true. Yeah, because they contain words of wisdom, and God commanded them to be written. And surely when God says, Teach ye one another out of the best books, if if we've already posited that the best books include those of other traditions, why would we assume necessarily that it's only Latter-day Saints teaching Latter-day Saints. Teach ye one another. I think of all of humankind teaching one another. And, And a verse comes to mind from the Quran that says, O humankind, we created you from male and a female, from a male and a female, and we made you races and tribes for you to get to know each other. There's this idea in Islam that God could have made us all of the same race and tribe, and he didn't. And he did it on purpose. He made us of different races and tribes so that we could get to know each other and so that we could teach one another. And he actually, there's also this idea in the Quran of vying with each other and doing good works. Instead of worrying about who has the true doctrine, it's, okay, take your doctrine and show me the fruits. Right? We should vie with each other in good works. If we're going to compete on something, let's not compete on having the right beliefs. Let's compete on having the best fruit. And what a world that would be where everybody's in that competition rather than the one we have. And then we have prophets starting from Joseph Smith and on down to our own time. We recently had elders Bednar and Gong speaking at a conference on Islam at BYU, letting us know that the church is going to be putting out a pamphlet on Islam and that Latter-day Saints should get to know the Islamic tradition. Why? I don't even know. They didn't even say why. I mean, I know I can give my own answer because because it's done so much for me. It's been really important to me. You have scholars in our tradition too. Daniel C. Peterson, one of the a great scholar of Islam and an author of an academic book on the life of the Prophet Muhammad. When George Albert Smith spoke on Islam, he said, "You can't really get a good, you know, an honest telling of the life of Muhammad in English. You just can't. It's just not out there because everything's polemical." Well, in today's world, we have a Latter-day Saint scholar who published a biography of Muhammad with, uh, with an academic press. This is an honest telling uh, that, that was acceptable to uh, to academia, uh, that was acceptable to scholars all over the world, including Christians uh, like himself. But let's go back to Joseph Smith, Riley.
1: Well, as we know from from some of the studies that we've done about Joseph Smith, he, he had teachers of other traditions because within the School of the Prophets, for instance, He wanted to expand the amount of knowledge that they had amongst the leadership of the church. And so he had a a Jewish rabbi that could teach them Hebrew, and they studied the Kabbalah. And of course, he had leadership of the church that went and studied some of the Masonic uh, fraternal traditions and and joined the Masons. Um, I don't know how deep they got into that, but there was certainly an exploration-type mindset when it came to the leadership of the church. And I, I just want to mention, because you, you brought up Daniel C. Peterson, I think this is an interesting question to ask. You know, for those who are somewhat threatened by the idea of going out and studying these other religions and incorporating some of the truth that you find there, can you imagine, just ask yourself this question rhetorically, can you imagine someone like Daniel C. Peterson or Hugh Nibley, for example, or B.H. Roberts or, or some of these, you know, great LDS scholars, can you imagine them being intimidated or scared? by studying some of these other traditions. And, and, you know, they wouldn't be who they are if they didn't branch out into some of these other religious traditions and try to find those commonalities, those those perennial truths that are buried deep within all of the traditions. That's what made them who they are in terms of their reputation as, as scholars, was the, the willingness to reach outside their own tradition, Right.
0: Yeah, Riley, how would you answer to someone who says, yeah, but that's Daniel C. Peterson, that's Hugh Nibley, they're, they're somehow qualified. What, what, quali- what qualification do we need?
1: Well, yeah, but I would say Daniel C. Peterson, yeah, th- these folks, I mean, they grew up like you and I did. I mean, they, they weren't scholars at six years old. At some point in their life, they got interested in something, and they pursued it, and they learned from it, and they incorporated it. They integrated those ideas into their own and they used them. It was useful to them. And they just weren't intimidated by it. So, I, I mean, we can say, oh, I'm too far along. You know, I'm in my mid-40s or whatever. And th- there's nothing that I can find there that would be of any use. Well, okay, if you're going to take that tack, go ahead. But you just can't make a great case that we ought to shy away from that stuff because of some influence that it might have on you that you're scared of. Like, it's it's very clear that there is useful knowledge to be had there. and And we have every incentive to go out and explore it, just like these, these famous you know, LDS scholars have.
0: Yeah, let me give another answer without disagreeing with you. Certainly, they weren't born scholars. Now, they did become scholars, so what about that? So my answer to that would be, what did, what did Joseph Smith learn from the Lord about the Apocrypha? What do you need to go into the Apocrypha? Did he need to translate it? Because when, when Joseph Smith was making his, what we call the Joseph Smith Translation, He had the question, apparently, he had the question of whether to translate the Apocrypha. And he was told he didn't need to do that because, well, it's already translated, but that was true of the rest of the Bible, too. It's interesting because the Apocrypha starts to disappear from the King James Version of the Bible during the time of Joseph Smith's youth. So he probably grew up reading from the Apocrypha in his Bible i can't I can't say that with certainty because it's right around that time that it starts to disappear. The apocryphal writings start to disappear from the King James all editions of King James Bible on both sides of the Atlantic. but he did have this question, and so what does the Lord say? What do you need to go into these other writings which by the way, there's a tradition in latter- in, latter- in the latter day saint tradition of going into these books and it happens cyclically cyclically. I know that right now, just from on an This is anecdotal, but I just know people who are reading the book of Enoch, so-called, where there really isn't a book of Enoch. There are the books of Enoch, right? And certainly Nibley did. And he found there are so many things that are part of our tradition that can be explained or that can be related to or that are already present in those books that are not part of our canon, but that used to be part of the, the, the Christian canon and still are actually for some, obviously for Catholics, they're part of the canon. But what did the Lord say he said all you need is the spirit there are truths in them and you can find them through the spirit and by the way there are things that aren't true and so the spirit is the guide and it's interesting that the lord says this about the the apocrypha is the way it's written but it seems to me considering that the process of cano- canonization is somewhat arbitrary this is the way we should read all scriptures and we're taught that right we're taught that we should read the scriptures by the spirit and so we can take that same spirit and we can read the scriptures and other traditions in the same way.
1: You know, I would say that, you know, you got the pseudo epigraphical books for, that are kind of the, between the Old Testament, and New Testament, and then you've got the Apocrypha. And I think there's a common thread between those books and what we have in our canon today, and that is that most of those books have some kind of a mystical element to it. And a lot of that was, was like, shunned at a certain period of time within Christianity. We don't want any of the mysticism. We're going to stick to the things that we know about Christ and that support that A, he's the son of God and that he, you know, and go down the checklist of things that we know are, are creeds about God. And if they support those creedal no, uh, points of, of doctrine, then yeah, we'll go ahead and keep those books, right? And so, you know, there, there's some danger, obviously, that I think people see when they go, okay, I'm going to start exploring these other things. And, and what they do to avoid the danger is that anything that already conforms to what they believe right now, and, and Nibley did this quite a bit, to be honest, if he was reading, for instance, first or second Enoch or something like that, and he pulled something out of it, usually it was something that already conformed to what he believed about, you know, the temple or the, the, the doctrine and covenants, the book of Mormon, it was some truth that was already with us. And these other books just confirm that for him. And so that's the way that he used a lot of these ancient texts. And I would just say. From my own experience, the greatest benefit that I've gotten from studying these other scriptures is by putting my own ideas and thoughts aside. And the things that I think I know and I'm very you know confident in or whatever, if I put those aside for a little while and just be open-minded to the ideas that come out of these other texts, I tend to get a whole lot more out of them instead of just looking for ways to confirm my own ideas and biases. Or
0: deny their ideas. Would you say the spirit has spoken to you directly through those those kind of experiences, taken that approach?
1: Absolutely, because I know that I've I've stopped mid mid mid-sentence at times and been like, whoa. Not only did that hit me on an intellectual logical plane, but it really spoke to me on a spiritual plane and spoke a truth to me that I hadn't realized yet. And so, in that sense, I know that there's truth out there that has been sealed to me in the past and is now opened up, and I'm open to it. And I know that that's the spirit speaking to me.
0: I've had the same experience, Riley. And and furthermore, those truths that I've found in those other texts, right, from outside of my own tradition, they've confirmed to me the truths, or not just confirmed. Again, we've talked about that already. This idea, rather, that they have explicated, that they've made. They've helped me to understand my own tradition. Studying another tradition has helped me to understand my own tradition.
1: So let's go beyond Joseph Smith and and move forward in time a little bit. And and you've got this pretty well-known quote from Brigham Young that we see used a lot, especially in the circles we run in. And it says, I want to say to my friends that we believe in all good. If you can find a truth in heaven, earth or hell, it belongs to our doctrine. We believe it. It is ours. We claim it. And that doesn't mean we claim it exclusively. This isn't that, you know, only true and living type assignment that we give to this truth. We claim it as our own we because it belongs to God and God gives these truths to everyone. And so I love this because it's not so exclusive. Um, it's still a truth claim. It's saying that there is truth in this thing that we've learned, but it doesn't have to, the Genesis doesn't have to be within our own church or tradition for it to be true.
0: Yeah, I know. There's there's a quote that comes to my mind from the Prophet Muhammad, from the Hadith, from the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and that is very similar to the Joseph to the Brigham Young quote. He says, "Wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever he finds it, he is most deserving of it." So it's the same idea, right? Of of searching, and in fact, the Prophet Muhammad said, "Seek knowledge, even unto China." You know, there's something else that comes to my mind. Another quote from Joseph Smith, and that is this idea that because when you said whether the truth would be in heaven, earth, or hell from from prophet Brigham Young, it reminded me of prophet Joseph Smith saying, I see no faults in the church and therefore let me be resurrected with the saints, whether I ascend to heaven or descend to hell or go to any other place. And if we go to hell, we will turn the devils out of doors and make a heaven of it. (laughs) I love that quote.
1: Yeah. It almost has this come what may type feel to it. Like, Hey, as long as I've got my friends with me, and I've got God's truth with me, I don't care what physical place I'm in.
0: Mm. Well, and it's this very daring approach of I, I'm going to look for truth, and if it takes me to hell, then I'm going to turn out the devil and make a heaven of it. Yeah.
1: Well, so you can move forward again, and you've got George Albert Smith, and he was a he was a big proponent of some of the ideas coming out of out of Islam as well, and and P. Pratt the same, right?
0: Well, there are these two these two speeches that they give that. Uh, latter day saints are generally unfamiliar with, and it's it's hard to you know you can't you can search the general the journal of discourses online, but you have to actually use the old spelling of Muhammad M A H O M E T, and if you do this, you'll find there's two discourses, one by George Albert Smith, one by Parley P Pratt. George Albert Smith, and this is this is something that we know from what he says at the end of his speech. He apologizes for having launched into this long history of the Islamic tradition, that he just obviously did off the cuff. And then Elder Parley P. Pratt gets up and he says, no apologies, let's talk about this some more. So he also didn't have planned to talk about this. And then he goes into it. So one of the things that's most impressive about George Albert Smith is how much he knows about the Islamic tradition at this point.
1: Yeah, both of them, in order to just be able to do that off the cuff.
0: Exactly. Yeah, you know how it is today where people uh, can't even point to the Middle East on a map sometimes, right?
1: It's different. <laughs> so the things that I pulled out of those discourses that were most interesting to me, and maybe it's just a little bit of confirmation bias because it, it, it speaks to what we're talking about. And, you know, we've gotten away from this, this assignment or calling Muhammad a prophet within the church. We, we like to say that there's inspired men, but we, we always stop short of calling them prophets. But George Albert Smith and Parley P. Pratt didn't stop short of that. They, in one, one part of the quote, it says, About 600 years after Christ, a prophet rose in Arabia by the name of Muhammad. Muhammad continued preaching. There was nothing in his religion to license iniquity or corruption. He preached the moral doctrines which the Savior taught to do as they would be done by and not to do violence to any man nor to render evil for evil and to worship one God. And I love this next part, too, that I pulled out of here. Now this man descended from Abraham and was no doubt raised up by God on purpose to scourge the world for their idolatry. I mean, to me, this is not mincing words at all. he's, He's calling Muhammad what he is. He's saying he's a prophet and he was raised for a specific purpose.
0: Yeah, in the first quote you read, we could understand, and he's saying, you know, he called himself a prophet, and I'm calling him a prophet, right? But by the time you get to the second quote, there's no doubt that George Albert Smith really does think of him as a prophet, and so that really is different from from the 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 way that the church talks about inspired men, but doesn't call them prophets. And I appreciate you bringing that out. So we just have so many uh, quotes from 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 the leaders of our church that have given us examples of. Of how we should be looking into other traditions and everywhere, right? Everywhere for truth. The prophet Joseph Smith, uh, Joseph F. Smith, says in Gospel Doctrine We believe in all truth, no matter to what subject it may refer. No sect or religious domination, or I may say no searcher of truth in the world, possesses a single principle of truth that we do not accept or that we will reject. We are willing to receive all truth from whatever source it may come, for truth will stand. Truth will endure. This, you know, it sounds just like Brigham Young, just like Muhammad, right? The same concept, the same idea that that we take truth from wherever we can find it, and it's and we own it, we accept it, it's as ours. We recognize it as ours. It's our own truth. So we've already talked about some of the scholars in our tradition, but I just wanted to go through and point out that there are scholars, both academic and amateur. There is such a thing as as being an amateur, right? One who loves scholarship and, and who is an, either an independent scholar or a non-academic scholar. And, and we have them in our own tradition who are interested in and engaged with and, and sharing what they learn from those other traditions. We mentioned already Daniel C. Peterson, who engaged with Islam in that way. We mentioned Hugh Nibley before him, who engaged with Judaism in that way. And then we have Phil McLemore, who we've, we've had on the podcast, who engaged with the Hindu tradition and who practices and teaches meditation, and has written some excellent articles on Hinduism from a Latter-day Saint perspective. Or should I say, on Latter-day Saintism from a Hindu perspective. You be the judge. Read the articles. They're on Sunstone. They're excellent. And then we have Thomas McConkie, who, by the way, is in dialogue with, with Phil McLemore. And Phil and I actually have the same dialogue, because I find a lot in Buddhism that speaks to me. And Phil finds more in Hinduism, and there are differences. And so we engage in this conversation in the the end, where he's arguing for Hinduism and I'm arguing for Buddhism. We're both strengthening our own Latter-day Saintism.
1: So I think what I want to convey, and, and maybe what I get the most out of this conversation, is that amongst all the paths that are out there, they, they all generally point in the same direction and they have a lot of commonality. And if we're really to come together in kind of this idealistic Zion type society, that, that diversity held together by the commonalities that we can find with each other is what's going to create a worldwide type Zion. And so as I study and, and open up to these other traditions, I'm doing it with that mindset of how can I use this stuff to relate better to my brothers and sisters throughout the world of any tradition or culture. And as I do that, I just find that my my heart swells with love. Like I have a higher capacity um, to relate and love those I come in contact with, regardless of their background or context or tradition or culture. And it just makes it easier for me to actually follow Christ.
0: I love that. And and it speaks again to what Elders Bednar and Gong recently said in, in, in inviting us as Latter-day Saints to get to know our Muslim brothers and sisters better. Riley, there's one more thing that I I wanted us to talk about that we haven't talked about, and that is that sometimes we look at the truths from other traditions, especially as Westerners when we look to the East, and the truths seem opposite, don't they? They seem opposite. And and I think we can even say that they are opposite. But here's the thing. As Niels Bohr, the, the physicist, put it. Niels Bohr says, the opposite of a fact is a falsehood. And so that's when we get into beliefs. We think, I have the right belief, you have the wrong belief. But he says, the opposite of one profound truth may very well be another profound truth. So yes, the East and the West have opposite ideas, but what if these are two sides of the same coin? What if these truths aren't in opposition to one another? They're two sides of the same coin. And what if, what if in getting to know one another as God says we should in the Quran, right? This idea that he made us of different races and tribes, that we actually complete that, right? That we have both sides of the coin and we come, we become complete as humanity. It's the
1: yin and yang, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's the exact same thing. Within any truth, there is contained a kernel of some opposite truth that's also a great truth. And I think that's a great way to wrap up this conversation because if we can start to see this, what we've, kind of set up as a battle of opposites, if we can start seeing them instead as complementary instead of adversarial, then I think that we open ourselves up to learning a whole lot more and becoming a more complete person. Um, I, in, in an upcoming episode, we're going to be talking about the divine feminine, and this is sort of just like a little teaser. And But it, it touches on this same idea that in order to become a fully complete, integrated, whole person— we, start, we need to really incorporate the opposites in w- within our own character, with within our own psyche. We need to see those opposite truths as part of a whole truth.
0: Yeah, this is what Jung called the mystery of conjunction, mysterium conjunctionis. Riley, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate you taking the time with me. And thank you.
1: Yeah, I've enjoyed it a lot.
0: And, and, and thanks to our listeners for being with us, too. For Latter-day Contemplation, I'm Christopher Hurtado.
1: And I'm Riley Risco. I
0: agree with you.